Hello everyone, welcome to episode number 6 of the True North Podcast. I'm your host, Benedict Rhodes. On today's episode, I'm joined by legendary Canadian swimming coach Byron McDonald from the University of Toronto Varsity Blues and the Toronto Titans of the International Swimming League. Over the next 35 minutes or so, we discuss everything from his legacy as a coach, his own Olympic and Commonwealth Games experiences, some coaching philosophies, Canada's current golden generation of swimmers, and his time as a broadcaster at CBC. All of that and more on this episode of the True North Podcast. Hope you enjoy it. I'm very excited now to be joined by Byron McDonald. Byron, how are you? And thank you for taking the time. Uh, I'm great, Benedict. This will be great. This will be a lot of fun. Looking forward to it. Uh, let's dive in, so to speak. Uh, you're the head coach at the University of Toronto, uh, of course. And, and this past week, you're at the OUA Swimming Championships. So I see behind you all the pictures and things. Uh, your team's had a fantastic meet, of course, sweeping the podium in several events and, and winning the men's and women's competitions. Uh, what were the major takeaways for you from the weekend? Um, well, yeah, the pictures behind me are uh, uh, all the years, the, um, the team pictures, basically, right? And um, and there's a lot of them. I've been here 45 years. So uh, the, the takeaways from the weekend is that with uh, our team, because we've been able to attract enough talent uh, on top swimmers with pretty lofty goals. Our goal is is always the national championships, and 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 unlike um, team sports where you have to kind of qualify through your conference championship and to go to the nationals, in swimming and track you post times, and that basically gets you to the nationals. So we knew the team that we were going to take, and we knew they'd all qualified, and we were going to go to the nationals, which is in ten days. So we don't swim through or belittle the Ontario championships, but it's not the main goal. The main goal is the nationals in, in 10 days. So that's what we're really setting our, hype, our our hopes on and our plans for. But at the same time, it's important to swim well at the conference championships. And, and uh, for many different reasons, not the least of which is feedback to see if we're on track to where we want to be. And, and the athletes did a great job, better than probably, I shouldn't say this, but probably better than I expected in, in many cases. Um, and that's important, too, because obviously, usually because it's local, I mean, it was at Western, but it's local, meaning it's in Ontario, a lot of family and friends and that can can attend and see it. So it's always nice to be able to swim fast. And and uh, I thought they did a great job. You mentioned, you know, you've been the head coach of, of that program for 45 years now, and, and your assistant, Linda Kiefer, has been with for 33 years as well. Uh, how has the program evolved since you first joined? And what does it mean to you to have not only been there for so long, but really kind of be able to shape it in, in your own way? Yeah, I mean, it's nice to have your own program, quote unquote, right? Um, the athletic department's been very, very good about allowing me to basically do what I want, when I want, how I want. I'm, I'm, in, I'm the master of the destiny here, right? Within, you know, obviously within the parameters of the university and the guidelines, et cetera. But um, so I, I've been able to shape the program the way I want. And, and when I was hired, the coach that was here before decided to step aside to let me come in because he said he felt he could take the team to a national level but not an international level. And we were opening the new pool, which obviously I've been training in ever since I almost got here. It opened a year after I got here on a big, you know, brand new 50 meter indoor pool and that. So he felt that the team should be getting loftier and be looking towards international goals. And so, you know, that was the way I was able to shape the program was to move it towards international goals as well as obviously domestic, um, you know, national goals as well. But, you know, we've always had uh, a lot of international athletes. So, so that's been, that's been the goal coming in and the goal that we've been able to maintain and at the same time not losing sight of the fact that, you know, I am hired by the university and the u- university is 
making sure the student experience is fantastic. And, and I think we've done a very good job with that. So. You mentioned you've had a lot of international athletes and some of the more notable ones recently, I guess, are Kylie Moss and Rebecca Smith in recent years. Uh, what do you remember about coaching those two and who else has really stood out to you over the years? Um, well, it's very interesting because um, uh, Rebecca moved out to Toronto to be at the National Center, which is based out at the Pan Am Pool on the east end of the city in Scarborough on the on the University of Toronto Scarborough campus. And and she moved out at 16, billeted. Um, they actually weren't going to be able to make it work. And I found one of my alumni that would billet her and house her for a couple of years. So she was only 16 years old. And then when that was over at the end of the um, leading into the Olympics, um, she made the Olympic team, won a medal and everything, and then came to U of T. Uh, the problem was that she wanted to be a nurse. And missing all those years with COVID and everything, uh, meant that her academic program had fallen way behind because she hadn't gone to school during those two-year prep. Usually it's only one-year prep, but it was two years because of COVID delay. And our the nursing program here is a post-grad program. So she was gonna she was willing to do the four years and then go, but after missing two, she kind of went, it's going to take me forever. And so she is from Red Deer originally, and she went back out to um, went back, out, back home to Calgary where it's an undergrad program and she's already, she's in the nursing program. So we've, we still keep uh, in touch with her. We're, we talk to her all, Rebecca all the time. Wonderful, wonderful young woman. And uh, Kylie Moss was very unique in the sense that um, she wasn't ranked very high. I mean, Rebecca, when she came in, was already an international athlete. Whereas Kylie was, I think we've done the stats. She was 201st in the world in her event. So really not that what you'd call an elite swimmer. And most women, by the time they're 18, they're pretty well elite if they're going to be world champions or world beaters. And she wasn't. She was only 201st in the world. And a lot of people actually thought she was a butterfly. And I, I felt she was a backstroker and obviously hit the nail on the head with that one. Right. And um, and Kylie is probably the most unassuming elite athlete I've ever coached. Um, she would you would never know being around her that she was an Olympic medalist, a world champion, a world record holder. Um, and all that happened very quickly after she got here after the first year. She didn't quite make the national team after her first year, but she improved to put herself in the challenging position. The next year was Olympic year. She went to the Olympics, won a medal. And the following year after that, she was world champion and, and a world record holder and really hasn't looked back. She's now graduated and, and moved on and she's out at the National Center. But again, we stay very close to her. It was a great experience. And um, other athletes over the years, uh, you know, we've had several others. I've, I've had somebody on every Olympic team. So I've been able to have different I guess different concept, different people. Um, most of them were fairly high maintenance. Um, I will admit, uh, as opposed to Kylie, who's incredibly low maintenance, works so hard and is so dedicated, and does everything you ask. And and I don't mind the high maintenance athletes. I mean, they they need some special attention sometimes. So I just make sure that you know, I'm giving 110 or 120 percent to everybody, so that if the high maintenance people are getting a little bit more, others are not suffering. And I think that's a key to a good environment when everybody feels they're getting the attention they need. And and who's up next? Like who who do you see at the moment at, at U of T or from maybe the Canadian university scene in general who could maybe potentially crack a national team roster one day? Um, we've got a, a young man here named Gabe Master Mateo from small town of Kenora. And I mean, obviously the the lucky part about him was normally in these smaller towns you may not have a program that can can work very well. But his mom's a coach and she's pretty good at it. And so in a small town like that, she was able to do the things that he needed when he was in high school well, and grade school um, to advance his career to the point where he was uh, on the doorstep. So I had meetings with the family and, and he actually moved down here in grade 12 to put the big push in for the Olympics. 
And of course, then COVID hit. <laughs> so nothing happened. But then he was always planning on coming to U of T. Um, so he came the next year. And in his first year, he made the Olympic team. And he was on a relay that surprisingly made the finals. There were eighth place at the Olympic Games. So so that's basically, you know, one of the top athletes in, in the country right now in the university system. Um, major, major setback um, in 2022. Uh, he got COVID and a bad, bad case of it. Um or 2021, whatever it was. And uh, he was out for eight weeks and really didn't get back to training for about four or five months. He was, he said, you know, it felt like somebody was sitting on his chest. Like he had a pretty bad case. So, but now it's a new year. We've had that that's behind us now. And, and, and he's, uh, he's moving forward. So there are, there are, there are people that are, are exceptional within uh, the U sports system. And, and there will be several, I'm sure that'll make the Olympic team. And you mentioned, you mentioned COVID a couple of times now. How did you as a, as a coach in the university in general, I guess, um, recruit athletes who, who maybe didn't have a season or weren't able to compete other than, you know, maybe the occasional training session? Yeah, I mean, great, great point. But I think it, it's a little bit easier in the sport of swimming because obviously, um, you know, in, in a basketball or a football, there would have been no games to recruit kids or look at kids, watch kids. And you probably hadn't been looking at them when they were in grade 10 or 11. You're probably going to wait till grade 12. Well, for us, they post times, obviously. It doesn't matter if they do it up in Kenora. It doesn't matter if they're doing Calgary or Moncton or wherever it is. A pool is a pool is a pool. So they post a time. So I would kind of know who the good athletes were. And maybe they didn't get a grade 12 season, which a lot of them didn't. But they did get a grade 11 season. And, you know, they're 17 years of age at that point. So they're they're able to post a reasonable time. And I can compare that around the country. So we kind of knew who the recruits were that we wanted to, to aim for. And as it was, we ended up with... Uh, several very very good recruits and we're quite excited about that and you yourself of course were once on the canadian national team and including a couple commonwealth gold, uh, games gold medals and a trip to the 72 olympics uh what are some of the fondest memories from your own swimming career uh i mean winning a gold medal is amazing uh, um you know when i won the gold medal at the commonwealth games it was extra special because a it was my first ever international team and you know probably a, a two years before that i really had no thoughts of swimming internationally. So it was, you know, I guess a little bit like Kylie, my career kind of took off very quickly and advanced very quickly. And so winning a gold medal was amazing, but what made it even, excuse me, more special was that Canada went one, two, three. Uh, the gentleman that was second was a guy named Tommy Russo, who I'm still friends with. And the guy that was third was Ron Jacks uh, out of uh, Vancouver. And again, I raced him a lot and knew him and and I've seen him at all the national championships. He's a coach now, too, and doing a very good job. So so it's kind of neat. And the first time ever it happened internationally, I think in any sport for Canada, where uh, we swept the podium. So that was quite special. It was in Edinburgh, Scotland, which made it a little bit easier. Um, and what I mean by that is everybody speaks English in Scotland, right? It's my first international team. And, and you know, the next year we went to South America. It's a whole different ballgame when you're when you're feeling very alien in a situation where you can't communicate. You need something. You can't talk to anybody because you don't speak the language. So it was another way to ease into in my international career uh, up there uh, at, at those games. So nowadays things have changed. Uh, that's not true. Commonwealth Games, you're still allowed three entries per country. But back when I was swimming, you were allowed three entries per country in the Olympics, too. But now you're not um, in the sport of swimming. It's down to two in all the international competitions, with the exception of the Commonwealth Games. And I'm looking at Munich in particular. I know you you were in the final of the hundred meter butterfly, and and you raced against you know the legendary Mark Spitz. What do you remember about that event, and and against racing against you know one of the greatest swimmers ever, really? 
Yeah, it was. And, and a lot of people ask me because obviously I've been around long enough to see, for those that don't know, Mark Spitz won seven gold medals in 1972. He was actually supposed to win six or seven in 1968 as a high schooler, grade 12. And then the pressure got to him and, and he was a bit brash and, and it kind of pissed off even a lot of his teammates. And I think they were actually probably happy he didn't win so many gold medals, which makes it tough as a kid. Right. And um, but then by the time he was 22 in his last year of university in Munich, he had kind of steeled himself against the world and um, wasn't the friendliest guy because of that experience. But uh, he was a great swimmer. And then they say, well, what about Michael Phelps? Isn't he? And, and the difference between the two is that Michael also had a phenomenal work ethic and a, and a pretty hard driving coach. And Michael, I would say, earned them. I mean, he was a talented athlete, but he was also one of the fittest athletes in the world. And um, whereas Mark Spitz, he didn't train very much. Right? Most people don't know that. He was so gifted that he probably could have picked up two or three more gold medals. He was that good. Um, just, you know, with a the program actually back then was only over six days, I believe. Now it's over nine, so you can spread it out and, and win more. So I would argue that Mark was probably the greater athlete. Um, but again, they're just incredible people. So I raced Mark uh, numerous times because I went to university in the U.S. And, and he was at the rival university. And so I raced him three or four times every year and had done it since grade 12. So, um, yeah, great competitor was never, ever going to beat him. Bottom line is when all of us stood up on the podium or on the starting blocks, we basically felt the gold medal was the silver medal because nobody was beating Mark. So. And what about the event itself of going to the Olympics? You know, a lot of kids dream of, of being part of you know such a big event. And what was it like for you away from the pool, you know, being in the village or, or just being around, you know, the quote unquote, the biggest event in sports? Yeah, it was, it was, Absolutely phenomenal. And and what I mean by that is, you know, my first experience was the Commonwealth Games and there were, you know, maybe 3000 people in the stands and, and the South American Games, uh, the, the Pan Am Games the following year and even the World Championships. They were they were small spectator events. This is massive. You know, the village is 10,000 people. It's, you know, it's like a, well, it's like a city on its own, obviously. Right. And uh, and there were, I don't know, 15,000 fans or something like that. It's just and, and really, basically, because of the mass media, you know, everybody is paying attention. You know, everybody back home knows and people back home don't necessarily know you're at the Commonwealth Games, certainly the Pan Am Games in South America. They weren't following. I don't know if it was live TV, but the Olympics, everybody follows. So, you know, that it's the big stage and, and it's it's quite pleasing to have made it and be there. Um, I feel sorry for the uh, Munich people um, and, the, and the German government because it was a perfect games. It really was. All the facilities were this was sort of the first um, the first massive games, I guess, for lack of another word. Right. You know, Mexico City in 68 was a pretty big games, but it was in October. Some of the countries didn't send full teams, et cetera. And Munich was incredible. It was a giant games, tons of people. Um, everything was perfect. The venues were unbelievable. Some of them are still in use today. And, you know, that's pretty rare with some of the Olympic facilities you hear about. So it was a great, great situation. And then unfortunately there was a terrorist incident and that's all anybody remembers from the games. And really it was a phenomenal, phenomenal games. And, and when did you know you wanted to be a coach and, and how did these experiences and, and your time in the pool make you a better coach? Well, that's a good, that's a great question because I never planned on being a coach, uh, but I, I did a commerce degree and I was fully prepared to go into big business. Um, you know, my dad worked in a giant printing company in the U.S., paper company or whatever, and one of my best friends ended up working there, and I probably would have too. Um, but what ended up happening was that after the Olympics, I did a 
backpacking trip through Europe because I'd graduated university and uh, kind of started thinking that maybe I, I needed to do a little bit more swimming. And, and then nowadays you read about Michael Phelps going to five Olympics and all these people, Kylie Moss, our athletes going to go to her third Olympics uh, this coming next Paris. And, and people back in my day didn't do that. Uh, you weren't allowed to make any money as an athlete back then. Right? You literally you couldn't do endorsements. You couldn't do anything. And so for that reason, basically you did one and done. All right. And especially if you're 22 years of age, you weren't going to hang around. So it was pretty abnormal to make a decision to stick around. And uh, I did. I decided I was going to go because the Olympics were in Montreal. I kind of thought, you know what, maybe maybe I'll stick around for four more years. But in, in particular, I'll stick around for a couple more because the World Student Games were the following year and they were in Moscow. And that may not have allured everybody now. But back then, that was like, you know, going to see the uh, Darth Vader and, you know, and, and then the evil force. Right. Because. It was the middle of the Cold War. So to be able to go into Moscow, I thought it was going to be cool. And then six months later, the Commonwealth Games are going to be in New Zealand. I thought, you know what? To go down under would be pretty, pretty special. And then I'll stay down there, which I did after the Games actually surfed for a couple of months. So, so that was sort of the idea. And then once I was sticking around, I kind of went, you know what? I started out with an MBA program here at U of T and decided I was tired of commerce. And I switched over into um, – recreation, basically, um, physical education. And that sort of got me thinking, then what am I going to do later? And then the coaching just kind of fell in my lap. And I thought it was an idea to try, not thinking I would stay with it for a huge long time. But it jumped right off the bat to a, a you know real success um, and real enjoyment. So that was going to be my, my, my path. And, and what are some of your coaching philosophies? I know it varies by swimmer, of course, but what do you look for in the swimmers and, and, you know, using Kylie's example, maybe how do you turn a good swimmer into a great swimmer? Well, that's a million dollar question. Obviously, if we, if, if, if we had the answer to that, we'd have even more great swimmers. Um, there's, uh, you know, in order to, I'm trying to think, um, I mean, the number one aspect, well, to back it up. Okay. Like the, the philosophies and stuff that I learned, um, I was very, very fortunate in this, you know, upon reflection, this is might be why I ended up in coaching. All right. Is that the five coaches, in essence, the five major coaches that I had through my sort of high school years and then university years and then, and then post-university, they um, they're all in the Hall of Fame. And I'm talking like, the you know, the American Hall of Fame, the World Coaches Hall of Fame, like these guys were luminaries in their sport. They were leaders. They were cutting edge. And they were committed 100%. They lived and died their, their coaching. And, and I think that that rubbed off on me. Um, and so, uh, and I've taken little bits from each. Um, you know, one of them was an unbelievable authoritarian taskmaster. And that's not me as a personality. And so I didn't, I, what I took from that was not to do that. <laughs> right. Um, and then, you know, one of the ones that I got along the best with, he was, he was, um, you know, pretty open and, and pretty, I don't know. Jovial is not the right word, but it was a it was a, a fun atmosphere to be around and in the pool. And uh, and I felt that that was something that I would I would want to create um, a lot of times, uh, particularly in the U.S. It's a pretty general and everybody are soldiers and, and it's top down. And I just didn't feel that that was what I wanted to do. So I've, I've tried to make it a little bit more open and and a little bit um, less authoritarian, I guess, would be the way to do it. So. And then using that, what you do is then you take a look at the kids and call them athletes and, and what what is it that's going to work for them? And the same thing won't work for swimmer A and swimmer B. You know, swimmer B may need to may need to have a little bit more firm direction and swimmer A may, may not. They may rebel. And I've had both sides of that spectrum where 
you know, I've had an athlete walk in and go, yeah, I really don't want to do that workout today. And yet this was a athlete that's top, top six in the world. And so you're figuring out, okay, well, how can you motivate that athlete and do something different with them as opposed to most of the athletes will do the pro the other program, the main program and, and stick with it. So you have to be a bit flexible. Um, a lot of great coaches will tell you compromise is a death knell. Um, if you compromise too much, then the athletes aren't going to get what they need. But um, you do have to figure out how to be flexible and how to be firm at the same time. And you're also, of course, the head coach of the Toronto Titans in the, in the ISL. Um, what do you make of this kind of innovation, I guess, to try and make professional swimming more of a, a TV product as opposed to just seeing the major events every two or four years? And, and also, you know, I know there's a hiatus last year, but what's, what's the future of this league and how big can it maybe get? Well, I hope the future is great, but um, I'm a little worried, to be honest. Um, it, it was a great, great initiative. It was it was fantastic. It was needed. And again, as we as I said, that uh, the sport's growing and what's happening is swimmers are swimming into their late 20s and they never did. So basically they would be done at 22, 23, 24, in which case you could do that in your university program. A lot of the best coaches are coaching in the university programs in North America anyway. Um, and, and so it was easy to do. But all of a sudden now 26, 27, 28, well, you don't really want that group to be training with 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds. So, you know, there are some national centers, which didn't exist 20, 30 years ago. And so that solves it a little bit, but it doesn't totally solve it because it's very individualized and you need you need something else for excitement and all that. And the ISL brought brought all of that to the forefront. It was very cool to be the head coach of the, of the Toronto franchise because, you know, we had, I think, 13, 16, uh, swimmers from 16 different countries on our squad. I mean, there's only 40 swimmers. Um, the one thing that maybe the, uh, the people, the listeners might not understand is that it's not like the Toronto Blue Jays where everybody came and we played together and trained together and everything for six months. Um, it's more like, um, uh, what was the comparison I used? Um, uh, like cycling or, um, maybe even your European cup or, or world cup of soccer where you bring them together for that one event and then they go back to their home clubs. And that's what, that's what the ISL did. We brought them together. We competed for a couple of weeks. It was during the lockdown, so we actually got locked down in, in Hungary. Um, and then they went back to their programs, and then we brought them back again uh, when we had another, when, when COVID was over, and we got another season off the, off the ground. So so we're kind of flying people in and out, um, but we still had to build a, build a team. So it was a great experience. It was great. Um, I think it was good TV. There were a few unique twists that we put into it. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a, a fair bit of ways from being economically feasible, Benedict. And, and that's obviously going to be the, um, the challenge. Uh, the gentleman that was in charge of it, his vision, uh, loves the sport of swimming, uh, lucky for all of us, <laughs> because um, it was probably a $20 million undertaking, and I don't think there was a lot of revenue coming back yet. All right, So it's a bit of a loss leader now that maybe down the road it can work. In the short term, it's, it's going to be a bit of a money loser. And um, and the catch of all of this and why it was on hiatus, as you mentioned this past year, is that the gentleman that is funding it is Ukrainian and um, probably has bigger things to worry about right now uh, with the war over there and everything being frozen and all of his assets and, and stuff like that. So so there isn't going to be uh, one this fall either, uh, this coming fall. Uh, it's on a hiatus until the fall of 2024. And I do hope it gets off the ground again. Um because it was uh, it was tremendous to be a part of it, and I believe it helped the athletes. It definitely helped the athletes in Olympic year because they would have had hardly anything to do. But we were all bubbled, sort of like NHL hockey and basketball. 
and everybody was able to train at a higher level than they would have. A lot of people didn't even have access to pools basically back here in North America. So it was a really good situation for them and they got a lot of racing in and most of them actually um, could trace that to some success they had going into the Olympics. And in Canada at the moment, we seem to have this, you know, golden generation, quote unquote, at the moment, especially on the women's side, you know, Penny, Alexiak, Summer McIntosh, Maggie McNeil, et cetera. Uh, what's the cause of this recent surge over the past seven or eight years? And how much of it can be mentioned? You mentioned earlier the, the Pan Am Sports Center in, in Scarborough. Yeah, uh, I think a lot of it stems from the the National Center that was set up at the uh, Pan Am Pool in the East End of Toronto here. Um, but a, but a facility is a facility is a facility, meaning, you know, water is water. You can you can succeed anywhere if you have good, you know, a reasonable facility. The key is coaching. You've got to have world class coaching. Um, and a good friend of mine and a colleague was uh, Olympic coach for Britain. And we, uh, I worked hard to convince him, as did some others, to come over here and be Canada's national coach based at that center. And uh, the change was remarkable. Um, I really believe we had some talent, and he was able to help take it to the next level. Um, Kylie Moss wasn't part of the center at that time. She was with us here at the university downtown. Um, but a majority of the athletes were a part of that center, that, that and obviously Penny Alexiak being the biggest name that everybody's heard of. Um, and that was, you know, that was a bit of fortune on our part. And what I mean by that is, had the center been in any other city, Penny doesn't get noticed, right? But she gets noticed in Toronto. Um, and then she, they make sort of an agreement where she's a bit too young to be there full time, but she does some in and outs and technique work and eventually just, just gets to that center. So, so it was a phenomenal amount of success um, that was basically attributed to, I believe, the National Center. And then I, I, I thought about it a little bit more. And, and I think part of it was also... You know, these these athletes, these these children chose the sport of swimming and and, you know, what have they chosen gymnastics or track or whatever? Maybe they would have been good. Maybe they wouldn't have been. But we would have lost them out of the sport of swimming. And when they were children, it was during Michael Phelps's move to the forefront of sport. And I'm talking all of sport, not just the sport of swimming. All right. So like 2004 to 2010, these kids would have been youngsters and deciding on different sports. And that was when Michael, you couldn't you couldn't turn on a TV without hearing about Michael Phelps. And I think that may have been the spur, just like way back when, when Nadia Komenich and Olga Kormit were, were getting all those tens in gymnastics in the seventies, the next 20 years, there was a huge influx of young girls going into gymnastics because of that stimulus. And, and I believe Michael probably deserves some of the credit for all these people choosing the sport of swimming over another sport. And, and what's the knock-on effect of that? Of course, he's you know Penny Alexiak inspired Summer McIntosh, for example, apparently. And 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 how how is that going to continue to to knock on? Do you think? Well, and that, you're exactly right. So that that helps, obviously, right? You know, so now all of a sudden you've got that situation where young kids are saying, "I want to be like Penny," you know, and and they're gonna they're gonna join the sport of swimming, and they're gonna stay with the sport of swimming, you know, hopefully to 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 realize their dreams, and and that uh, you know success begets success, as a lot of people will tell you. Um, but you can't sit back on your laurels um, just because you're getting more talent in. You've got to do the right things by that talent. You asked me earlier, you know, what makes a kid from good to great? And again, I'll go back to what I said is you, you've got to have great coaching to take that kid to the next level. And and I'm not talking great coaching for the 18-year-old. You've got to have great coaching at the 12 and 13-year level because they've got to set up really good technique at that age. If you screw up their technique and screw up their desires at that age, they may not be around three or four years later or five years later when they can when they can start to make a move. So and the final thing I'll say on that is that, you know what, there might be somebody out of Timmins or 
you know, Kitchener Waterloo or something that might not have been identified and might not have chosen the sport of swimming just because it may not be big in their community. Whereas now all of a sudden they might choose it. And maybe the coaches up there, because they're inspired as well by the whole situation of Canada winning, they're going to do a little bit better job. And those athletes then might progress and, and become part of the national team. So, you know, we've even got some men right now. It took, took, takes longer to, to produce men at the world scene, but we've now got a couple of pretty good men on the program as well. It's not just women, which is, which is nice to see as well as a, an example for young guys coming up. And and just how good can Summer McIntosh be? You know, obviously she's a heck of a swimmer already at, at 16, but how much further do you think she can develop? The moon. <laughs> she's going to go to the moon. All right? She's going to go to the stars, basically, right? This is a, this is a Michael Phelps type once in a generation athlete. Um, and the and and the reason it's a little bit different than someone like a Penny is Penny had a couple of events that she could swim extremely well and did very very well, whereas Summer can swim just about everything. Uh, it's it's phenomenal how the upside on this young woman, um, she will challenge for medals, probably even gold medals, in up to four or five events um, at the Olympic Games. And obviously, the reason she's not going to be a Michael Phelps and win eight gold medals is that the Americans win three gold medals in the relays all the time, almost always, right? And, and Canada, we don't have the depth usually to win a gold medal in, in, in the pool. We win medals, but the gold medals are a little bit tougher, tougher to get, right? So, so you know, Summer's going to win a whole whack of individual medals, and she's going to be around for a while. I mean, we're talking in Paris, she's only going to be, what, 18, right? So, you know, we're talking L.A., she's going to be 22. Four years later, she's still only going to be you know, whatever. Right. So, yeah, she's going to be around for quite a while. She'll become I would argue she's going to become a household name. And and the good thing about it, Benedict, is a, she's got uh, she's got good grounding. Her mom was an Olympic athlete. Her mom knows what it's all about. All right. So, you know, she's got a great family behind her and and she kind of gets it and she works hard. She doesn't rely on her talent like she's the you know, you might think, oh, well, she's done so well already. Maybe she's going to you know cruise a little bit. Right. She's right in the water the next day, training hard, doing the things she needs to do. So so this is uh, going to be a joy for everybody out there to watch this woman's p- progress because she is she is unbelievable. And, and in recent years, you've also done a lot of work as, as a commentator for CBC, most notably. Uh, what's it like for you to be on the mic and how does your experience, again, going back to the coaching and swimming uh, and your expertise in that benefit you when it comes to calling these events? Um, well, I, I mean, it benefits me tremendously. I don't. I, I wouldn't have been hired, I don't think, or wouldn't have been state hired if uh, if I didn't know what I was talking about. So, you know, it gives me the insight that I can then give to the viewer to say, look at what lane three is doing. Oh, they they glided into the turn, or they did this wrong, or you know, they have a bizarre stroke, but it seems to work because of the x axis and y, right? So, so you know, my job is to get the viewer to understand what's happening. Um, and I think if I didn't have a good background in coaching and, and the sport, both as an athlete and certainly obviously these many years as a coach, then I wouldn't be able to do as good a job and I wouldn't be able to illuminate sort of what's happening for, for the viewers. So so I love doing it. Um, it's a lot of fun. Obviously, it's it's mass media. It's exciting. Um, and I do know there's a lot of people paying attention. So I've got to try to make sure that I do a good job. Um, but it's fun. I, I mean, I've got the ringside seat for the biggest game in the world, right? At the Olympic games. And uh, so it's, it's really, really great. I'm really happy. I was able to uh, be in the right place at the right time to uh, get that job and be able to stay with it. And you've been praised for your in-depth knowledge of, of seemingly every swimmer that competes. Uh, what does your research look like ahead of a competition and how much do you sort of pride yourself on that? 
Yeah, I, I do pride myself on that, right? It's um, it's 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 something that I felt strongly about. Sometimes you have to go with your gut feeling, and my gut feeling was that the viewer wants to know more about these athletes. And once the once the gun goes, you you can't really talk about that. Okay, this isn't baseball where there's a whole ton of time to kill and talk about these the people involved. This is a, a one minute race where there's a lot of poop hitting the fan all of a sudden, right? And you got to talk about the race and what's happening in the race and the strategy. You can't talk about the kid. Uh, the athlete. And and so I just felt that was something that was missing. So I started to try to do as much research as I possibly could. And 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 it was a challenge because there was no internet, obviously, way back. And and so the only way to do it, again, was the benefit of being a coach is that I knew other coaches and I could get an in and talk to people. Um, and I could talk to them and I would travel to different competitions and I would be able to see people and learn and talk and, and all of that. Now it's a bit easier because of the internet. Um, but it's ongoing, Benedict. Like, in other words, you know, like yesterday, I spent an hour writing down notes and everything that I could grab from competitions that are going on around the world. There's one in Australia going on right now, and you never know where there's gonna, you know, I, I, I get up and I read the Sydney Morning Herald, right? <laughs> you know, newspaper or the Brisbane, you know, and and then sometimes it'll be the British papers or something like it. You you need to get your information anywhere. And the print media sometimes does a pretty good job of, of expanding the story and they'll talk about people. And and then there's interviews of swimmers done by a couple of major websites. And, you know, I'll, I'll normally I probably wouldn't care to to listen to a 60 minutes or a 50, 40 minute interview with, with a particular athlete. But I do because I might pick up that little nugget of information, you know, like like the one I picked up about, you know, a a girl that during COVID was bored with doing the dry land Zoom. So she joined her father's trash hauling company and she walked behind the truck in Birmingham, England for 16 kilometers a day picking up garbage. Right. And she said, after eight weeks, I realized I'm going to go back to the Zooming. (laughs) A lot more fun. Right. So but but you pick up something like that and it really. I don't know. It just it enhances the the experience for the viewer. And I think the kids I shouldn't call them kids. The athletes um, like to be known for more than just somebody standing in a bathing suit. But but it is ongoing and it's a lot of work. And I don't you know. I'm like NBC where they have three or four researchers working for the commentators. I'm it. <laughs> right? So I do it all. So. And uh, finally, last question for you. What do you want to see from Canadian swimmers over the next year and a half in the lead up to Paris? Um. There's a bizarre situation happening right now in the sport of swimming. And what I mean by that is usually there's a, a world championships the year out from the Olympic Games. And there is going to be one this this summer. It's in Japan. But then there's another one that's thrown in February, which is to make up for the one that was, in essence, kind of canceled for COVID. And, and it's going to be very, very weird because some of the athletes won't go. Some of the athletes will go. You might win easy. The medals might be easier to win. But at the same time, it's a weird time to, to try to win medals in February. So... It's going to be a bit bizarre. So you can't sort of say, oh, well, we want success in all the big world meets leading into the Olympics because there's going to be a little bit of picking and choosing that's going to be going on. So, so I, you know, usually you've got to make a bit of a move the year before the Olympics. I mean, there are the exceptions like Penny Alexiak, who was nowhere the year before the Olympics. And had such a gigantic improvement arc that she was able to get to the top of the podium a year later. But usually you want to succeed the year before in some fashion. Doesn't mean you got to win the gold medal. Doesn't mean you got to win the bronze medal, but you got to be in the hunt. And so this summer in Tokyo or in Japan, you want to have some success and then come the Olympic games. Then obviously, you know, for Canada, my hope is that everybody fires on all cylinders um, and continues their, their performances, their performance level that they're at now. 
All right. People think, oh, well, they're already ranked number one or number three in the world. That's easy. It's really hard to keep where you are at. The rest of the world is doing everything in their power 24-7 to try to beat you. And, uh, you know, there's a target on your back. And that was a tough one for Kylie when she broke the world record because instead of the underdog, now all of a sudden she was a favorite. And we had a, it was a tough year that year, right? And, and we made it through, but it was, it was a whole different aspect. And so there's a lot of things at play when you're trying to repeat. And it's going to be a great Olympics for Canada simply because I think Summer McIntosh is going to be on fire. And once you've got somebody like that, it actually reduces the pressure on the rest of the team because now somebody's taking the mantle and running with it and the others can just follow on that momentum and just win some more medals. So this this could be one of the best Olympics ever for Canada in the pool, I'm sure. Yeah, I know you're, you're hoping for that. I know many Canadian fans are as well. Uh, Byron, it's been an absolute pleasure to get your insight and, and uh, hear about your experiences, and I can't thank you enough for, for joining us. Glad to do it, Benedict. Have a good day. Thanks again to Byron McDonald for joining the show, and thank you for listening to this episode of the True North Podcast. If you like this and want to be the first person to listen to future episodes, as well as receive all new written stories right into your inbox, you can subscribe for free at truenorthsports.substack.com. You can also follow True North on Twitter at truenorth underscore sports and on Instagram at truenorthsport. My name is Benedict Rhodes, and thank you for listening to this episode. I'll see you again next time.